It is my distinct pleasure to welcome you on behalf of the Norfolk City Council and Mayor Paul D. Frame. Uh, Mayor Frame and the members of council has always been supportive of this effort. Mayor Frame is not here uh, this evening, but he's been extremely uh, supportive. And I really believe that he's not here because he hates to see the farewell tour. And, uh, and that's serious though, and, uh, and, but uh, he sends his uh, greatest uh, hope for success. He certainly sends uh, greetings of birthday to Father Green. And we just hope all of you will enjoy this evening. We are uh, pleased to have the former governor, uh, L. Douglas Wilder, which is really, man, a big kid. So um, thank you so much for coming, and God bless all of you, and let's enjoy this evening. Now we have our lecture series, History, by a man like no other. Not known as a hero around the world, but a hero he is to this little girl, my dad, Earl P. Fraley, Jr. Now that you all know what a hero looks like, But I too, uh, ladies and gentlemen, would like to uh, welcome and thank each of you for taking the time out this evening to join with us here as we look forward to what I'm sure will be some insightful and poignant messages from our illustrious speaker. Uh, those of us who have participated in the planning and organization to present this series are indeed proud of how far we've come to date in offering such a dynamic set of informative and intellectually gifted speakers. And indeed, we eagerly look forward to expanding our offerings annually to bring you noted and respected leaders from the Hampton Roads region and beyond to energize and inform you, our audience. And from where did we come? Well, through the vision of the gentleman you just heard, Norfolk City Councilman Paul R. Riddick, the Joseph N. Green Jr. Lecture Series was born in 2011 out of the notion to present for, uh, to present a forum for distinguished African-Americans to share their thoughts and ideas on social, political, cultural issues of importance to citizens from Norfolk and throughout the Hampton Roads region. That inaugural session focused on the African-American legal community and the role it played in the struggle for civil rights. Fittingly, our first series guest speaker was the Honorable Judge John Charles Thomas, a Norfolk native and the first African-American member of the Virginia Supreme Court. In succeeding years, the series focused on presenting equally prominent and noteworthy speakers with strong local ties, including Dr. William Billy Spriggs, professor of economics at Howard University, chief economist to the AFL-CIO, and former assistant secretary for the Office of Policy, U.S. Department of Labor. He was followed by retired Marine Corps Major General Leo V. Williams III, one of the first two African Americans to be admitted into the U.S. Naval Academy, and who subsequently retired as a ranking official with the Ford Motor Company. He was followed by the dynamic Reverend Dr. Yvonne V. Delk, founding director of the Center for African American Theological Studies and the first woman to be ordained in the United Church of Christ. And last year, we were extremely privileged uh, to present attorney Elaine R. Jones, the fourth president, uh, the fourth president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, 
And I was told that uh, Ms. Jones was to be here this evening. I uh, hope that she is. We indeed would be grateful if she would acknowledge herself to us. Elaine Jones has done a tremendous job in leading the, alleged, the educational defense fund. Each of those renowned speakers I've mentioned shared with us not merely their respective life experiences and their purposeful rise up the ladder of success. They each challenge us to continue to prepare ourselves by nurturing our innate talents and to persevere against the ongoing and unyielding fight to achieve fundamental equality and human justice. Our speaker this evening is in a similar vein to our prior speakers, one of the illuminating figures, a field general, if you will, on that battlefield to remove obstacles which impair our collective rising, and we indeed look forward to what I'm sure will be some uplifting remarks. It is noteworthy, too, that this lecture series bears the name of Reverend Father Joseph N. Green, Jr., former rector of the Grace Episcopal Church here in Norfolk, former Norfolk City Councilman and Vice Mayor, who, among his many other contributions in this community, spearheaded the restoration and renovation of this impressive facility we're in here this evening, the historic Christmas Attics Theater. We, the members of the Green Lecture Series Planning Committee, are indeed grateful and fortunate to participate in such an enlightening experience and anticipate with the support of individuals such as yourselves in continuing to bring before you in the future speakers and presenters to uplift and intellectually stimulate our community. Your presence here this evening provides added motivation for us to continue to grow and expand the potential of this series. We are undoubtedly appreciative of your support and participation and offer to you our most heartfelt thanks. Thank you. Born and raised in Richmond, L. Douglas Wilder first won election to the Senate of Virginia in 1969, making him the first African-American elected to that body since Reconstruction. He was subsequently reelected four times. While in the Senate, he chaired the committees on transportation, rehabilitation and social services, privileges and elections, the Virginia Advisory Legislative Council, and the Senate Steering Committee, which appoints committee members. He successfully sponsored Virginia's first drug paraphernalia law and the compulsory student attendance law. Other legislative achievements as a state senator include providing state health care for sickle cell anemia patients, toughening penalties for capital murderers and prison escapees, and expanding low and moderate income housing. For eight years, he persisted in sponsoring legislation that eventually led to the establishment of a state holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This made Virginia the first state in the country to have a legislative holiday honoring Dr. King. After serving ably in the Senate, he was elected Lieutenant Governor of Virginia in 1985, which marked another first. Wilder is the first, and to date the only, African American to win statewide elected office in Virginia. Four years later, in another historic achievement, he was elected Governor of Virginia. His victory made him the first elected African American Governor in the history of the United States. For this achievement, the NAACP awarded Governor Wilder with the prestigious Spingarn Medal. During his time as governor, Wilder successfully <clears throat> balanced the budget twice, and for that, Financial Times named Virginia the best managed state in the country. Governor Wilder also spearheaded legislation aimed at reducing interstate gun trafficking in Virginia. After leaving office in 1994, Wilder remained deeply involved in Virginia and national politics. In 2002, Governor Wilder was appointed chairman of Governor Mark Warner's Commission on Efficiency and Effectiveness, and also co-chaired the Wilder-Bliley Commission Charter Commission that advocated the at-large election of mayor in the city of Richmond. Citizens overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly approved this measure in 2003. 
Persuaded to run for mayor in his hometown of Richmond in 2004, Mr. Wilder received nearly 80% of the vote and carried each of the city's nine city council districts and every precinct to become the first African-American mayor elected by the people of Richmond. He was sworn in 2005 and served until 2009. During Mr. Wilder's term as mayor, Richmond made remarkable progress in its fight against crime, which reached its lowest rate in 27 years. Downtown economic development and neighborhood development improvements were widespread, and financial management reached a new level of scrutiny that served taxpayers well. He also established a $300 million City of the Future program for building new schools and making improvements to neighborhoods, parks, libraries, streets, and sidewalks, all without raising taxes. Today, Governor Wilder is a distinguished professor at Virginia Commonwealth University's L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs. And he's often sought out by current and prospective politicians for advice and guidance, and is often quoted by national news outlets about the current state of political affairs. A veteran of the United States Army, Mr. Wilder served in the Korean War and was awarded the Bronze Star. He rose to the rank of sergeant and was honorably discharged. Wilder attended Virginia Union University, where he graduated with a degree in chemistry, and he later obtained his law degree from Howard University in Washington, DC. Prior to his time in elective office, he practiced law in Richmond at Wilder, Gregory & Associates, which at the time was one of the few minority-owned businesses in the state. He is the father of three grown children, Lynn, Lawrence, and Lauren. And I guarantee you this is just a fraction of his accomplishments, and I'm sure I left out a, a few big ones. But I know that you guys all want to hear the man, the myth, the legend, L. Douglas Wilder. Wow. That's all I'll say is wow. Jay, I can say that your grandfather Hillary would be so proud of you, he wouldn't know what to do. I saw your grandmother earlier and your father and mother earlier. I don't have to tell you how proud they are of you. You know that. <clears throat> and I saw so many people that I know in the audience as you were coming in, and so many of you that I know by first name, and I want to say something about them now, but I can't. Because if I do, that's all I'll be talking about. <laughs> but <clears throat> in listening to you, Jay, talking about the things that I may have accomplished, I want you to know that none of it ever could have been accomplished without the support of the people that I speak of and the people that I have known through the years. Paul Riddick, I want to thank you for the sponsoring of this event. Joe Green and Evelyn, I want to congratulate you, Joe. You're one of the few people that I can see in the audience that may be older than I am. <laughs> I can say to you, though, that <clears throat> you've been a role model for so many people. You set forth so many things. You served well as your legislative responsibilities as a council person and vice mayor. Not only that, you've not given up. You, you, you stood, and stood in and hung in and do all those kinds of things that are so necessary. And it's good to, to have that. I'm not going to, as I say, call any people's names as such, but 
when I saw W.T. Mason coming in, and W.T. is one of those old lawyers, and I told him, I said, W.T., I, I know you get a lot of people, media people, who are calling you and asking you things because um, they call me. And I tell them, I said, before me, there was he. <laughs> Call him, and he can tell you some things. And I say that, Jay, particularly, and I know your father will tell you that few people, few people in Virginia, few people in the world, in America particularly, have any idea as to what we had to go through what we had to do, and but for the lawyers, African-American lawyers, working for nothing, hardly, harassed continuously. And I was speaking to someone the other day, they didn't really know, and there was a group that was formed by the Virginia legislature called Committee on Offenses, Committee for Offenses, uh, against the administration of justice. Their sole purpose was to disbar black lawyers. Their sole purpose. In Norfolk, they used to have the parades. W.T., you remember the youngsters would put on their green uniforms, suits, and go through the streets, there was Dolly and Holt. They tried to disbar Dolly, I mean Holt, ran Dolly out of town. I know this because I bought his law books before he left to go to Ohio. And we do hear the names of some of the lawyers. Good friends, we all know. But so many you don't know, and so many of the groups. You know there's the biological expression of the rhizome, that's the, the, the root structure under the plant in the water. You see the beautiful flowers, but you don't see that rhizome because it's so deep in the water. What you see is the fruits of the rhizome, and what we have experienced is seeing those people make the sacrifices that they have made through the years, that you've sought to restore this building and the name of it, just the name in and of itself is significant enough to continue to be remembered and restored because these things are not taught in school. They are not taught at home. They are not taught anywhere because people don't know them and so I have occasion, I was speaking briefly to Bobby Scott's assistant when he came in. I said, you know, Bobby's one of the few people I say good things about. <laughs> and I said, you tell him because he knows how few they are. <laughs> and on occasions, when he comes to Richmond or we go to lunch, and we sit and commiserate, we talk about our days in the legislature, we talk about the opportunities as to why certain things need to happen. 
I remember Bobby was sitting in the legislature in 1985 when I was talking about running for lieutenant governor, and he pulled out a little piece of paper, and I didn't know what he was doing. He started walking around to the chambers. The next thing I knew he was doing, he was saying, I want to know the names of all of you in here who can't support him. <laughs> and we held a meeting. He, he held a meeting. When he finished, he had the majority of those people convinced that they would be doing the right thing. Now, you don't read about those things. You don't see those things. Somebody said to me earlier today, I remember I still had the thing on the wall when you wrote, thanked us for the fundraiser we gave for you. I said, yes, but this is what made it happen. Sometimes you press the flesh of people that you've never seen, uh, but one or two times in life. They haven't forgotten you, and you don't forget them. You don't forget people. You don't really forget the things you want to remember. And think of that. You don't forget them because you never chose to remember those things. But your mind makes room for that is good. That's why the computers today have automatic deletes. We can't have all of this stuff in our computer, and your mind can't either. And so for those things that are important to you, you have an occasion to remember them. And so I don't need to say too much today to speak because I heard, my, I heard the speech while I was walking around here, <laughs> the speech that I gave at the <laughs> inauguration. And if you recall in that speech, I concluded by saying that I was a son of Virginia. That's the title of the book that I wrote, many of you have bought today as, as well as this evening. And I'd been asked for years as to when I would write a book and if I were going to write one. I said, oh yeah, I'm going to do it. When? I said, oh, I'll get to it. And then birthdays started coming, <laughs> kept coming. Say, are you going to write the book? Yeah, when? I'm going to get to it. <clears throat> and I said, I better get to this thing if I'm going to do it. <clears throat> now, we've made progress in this country. There's no question about that relative to combating racism and the effects of racial discrimination. And nowhere is that more clearly demonstrated than in politics. And I tell my students when I'm speaking or even lecturing at Virginia Commonwealth University at the Wilder School, I have a one-word definition for politics, one word. And that one word is money. They start off arguing with me at the beginning of the semester, Jay. And by the time the semester's halfway through, everything they open their mouth about is money. Because I said, tell me any proposition, any proposal that's advanced or being talked about that doesn't cost money. And so they try to gang up on me. And they'll mention a few things. They'll say, well, abortion. Wait a minute. What do you think about people who are saying, oh, yeah, you're right? Well, what about LGBT uh, marriage? I said, inheritance, et cetera, health care, et cetera. And they finally get it. And so one of the things that I 
learned early on, and Bob and I, we used to discuss this, is that rather than for us to worry about the fair slice of the pie, or an equitable piece of the pie, wouldn't it be better if we would have our hands on the knife that cut the pie? Somebody else bakes it, maybe. Let's make certain we can cut it, and then in that instance, then why are we not a part of that decision-making process? And so I do <clears throat> quite a few up, um, things with school kids now, and you know, by being able to set your laptop up or your computer, you can talk to kids in Texas or <laughs> Florida and from your office. And they have questions, and I like to do that. And they ask questions like day before yesterday. Thank you. They ask questions about when did you decide you wanted to go into politics? Or what made you think that you could be a leader? When I say I never wanted to go into politics, I hated it to the extent of having to want to go around and beg people for money and asking for votes. But I ran my mouth all the time, always fussing, always arguing. I don't like this. I don't like that. And they said, why don't you do something about it? I said, well, I will. What? I don't know. And then it got to the point that I, I said, it, it doesn't make sense for me not to be involved. And you pointed out, Jay, yes, I was in the military. And when I was in Korea, 1952, I said, here, I'm being sent to die in Korea to fight for the freedoms of Koreans. And I got to come back home. I, I can't even go to law school in Virginia. I can't drink from a water fountain. I can't try on a suit of clothes. This doesn't make any sense. And yet, when I was in Korea, the Army had been integrated at that time. Harry Truman didn't do it by a whole bunch of argument with the Congress, by executive order. Because in 1948, things were so tough around the world People were looking to America to say, now wait a minute, this Russian influence is real and, and great. You're supposedly the land of the, the, the free, the home of the brave. Truman cut through it with a knife, say, okay, we're gonna integrate the army. And so I'm in Korea, and while being there, I noticed that people were coming over. I was training them. They were being promoted. Uh, we still had the same rank. Didn't make any sense. I said, this doesn't make sense. And so people started arguing. So a guy named Richburg from Pittsburgh, he said, you know, why don't we go down every, every month we go on the front line. Every month you could go from the front line and take a shower. And he said, when we make the next shower break, let's go to see Major Acuff. The major had told us when we first got there. He said, I want you to know the Army now is integrated, and it's, it's going to stay that way, and I'm going to make certain that its policies are followed. If you ever have any problems in that regard, you'd come to me. Don't you try to handle them yourself. You come to me. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll come to you. 
if that's the case. And we couldn't still do anything with reference to promotions. So a Richburg said to me, he was a sergeant, he said, well, look, why don't we go to see the major as he, you said you would if he told us to come to do it. He said, you, 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 you come on, take us down there. I said, you're the sergeant. I'm a corporal. <laughs> I can't march us down there. He said, I, tell you, I will march us down there if you get the thing straight. I said, all right. So in the military, those of you out in the army, you know, service know that, if you go to your presiding officer, who would be the master, first sergeant, I want to see the captain. Well, it's personal. He can't ask you anything more about that. It's personal. We did that with the company commander. We did it with everybody else until we got down to see the, the major. He said, but when we go down, what I want us to do, I want us to put on our steel pot helmets, put on our two bandoleros of ammunition, two grenades, and put our rifles on our shoulders, bayonets and sidearm, and, and I will march us down. That was about 30-some of us. All African-American. When others saw us marching that next day, <laughs> they said, what the devil is going on? So we get to see Major Aircuff. Major Aircuff says, why are you here? And I told him, I said, no. I said, the men have something they want to tell you. Because we had talked about it that night before, all through the night. <clears throat> all right? Men, to tell the major he wants to hear from you. No one opened their mouth. I said, would you please open your mouth? The major wants to hear. Nothing, yeah. I said, well, let me start it off, Major, by saying I started to talk about it. Before I could get halfway through, they got into it. And once they got into it, it was complaint after complaint, legitimate complaint. The Major listened, and we told him this. Some of the men are wondering whether it is us to be here to fight the common foe on the other side or to fight other things. And that got through to him. He said, I told you when you got here that the Army was integrated and it was my job to make certain that no problems ever existed. You go back to your quarters, resume your duties, I will do what I said I will do. And sure enough, one month after that, Promotion started taking place. Things changed tremendously. And it hit me like a, a, a rock. I said, now, if the Army can do this, why can't we do this at home in America? I'm eating in same places with whites, same mess halls. We wear the same uniforms. We do everything together. We share misery, pain. We live, we love, we die. Why can't we live like that at home? And so I was bitten with the bug. I still didn't want to fool around with politics, but I said, hey, look, I, my major is chemistry. And I, that, that, I don't know if I can do this. But I came back and I still tried to do chemistry. And I worked for a couple of years as the chief medical examiner's office, doing toxicology, doing all the drunk driving tests for the whole state of Virginia, because you only had one office at that time. 
Oh, I liked it. It was fascinating work, but it wasn't. It wasn't grabbing me. In 1954, Board versus Brown versus Board of Education came out. I said, oh, I can't. I, I got to get into this. I got to get into law school. And so, with that attraction into law school, with the understanding that I knew that if you presented your case, if you argued your case. If you made the case, people could well understand that what you're speaking about not only makes sense, it's, it's the only possible way you could achieve the kind of things that we believe in this country. I thought Lincoln's words meant what they implied. Government of the people, for the people, by the people. That's why our Constitution surely is something that should be read on a regular basis, but it should be applicable on a regular basis. It does mean all of America. You hear people today saying we're going to make America great again. When was it great? When there are those of us still suffering the pangs of the discrimination Denial, lack of concern. Our cities needing the kinds of help, not just one city, every city across this country needs help when you see the stultifying effects of neglect. When you look at a Detroit, makes no sense for that to happen in America when we're spending billions of dollars other places. It makes no sense for people to say, well, we're going to move a little further outside of the city. One of the finest speeches I've ever heard Obama give was when he spoke to the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Florida, a room filled with people of every political description. And he said, our cities are not the hindrances to metropolitan growth. They are the engines of that. And they are the things that should be used to show how we can move America ahead. And so my entry into politics was geared to represent the forgotten, the left out, the taken for granted, and those excluded from the domains of power sharing. And I'd come to know and to recognize that those continuing in that group were greater than I could ever imagine. Race age, gender, and class are still parts of the things that divide us. <clears throat> the history of politics in Virginia provided the model for the early political structure of our nation. People say, why do you say that you were a son of Virginia? I said, because I am all that Virginia is, the good, the bad, and the ugly, put together. I was born here, I've lived here my entire life. I, I know that there are Virginians who have been a part of everything that took place. Uh, we were founded as a nation in Jamestown. The British surrendered in Yorktown. Lee laid down his arms in Appomattox. And so if all of those things were descriptive of America, then why should people be surprised that Virginia produced the first African-American elected governor? It should not have been. 
And so I, I am encouraged by the spirit of so many of these young people who know that it's important to lean steadfastly into the wind. Pay no attention to those who say you can't make it, you can't cut it, you won't cut it. You can be anything you want to be. And if you don't believe that, then it's our job to make certain that it's continually instilled. Earlier today, I was speaking to a group of people who were gathered to support a candidate for mayor. And I told them that that candidate for mayor would be my candidate for mayor, Kenny Alexander. And I said, this is the kind of person that we really need. Someone who's running not for himself, not running to further his or feather his cap. He's giving up a prestigious seat in the Senate to come, as he says, back home and give back further. And with that type of example, young people can see it. With that type of example, others can see it. And to the extent that we have so far to go, so many more things to do, it's important that we don't look upon these dawning days of the Obama administration to believe, but say, well, what's going to happen? We still can do it. But we've got to hold everybody accountable, even those who represent us who look like us. We've got to make certain that we all are in this together. Because that's how the nation started. All of us were supposed to be one nation, indivisible. And yet we have seen so many things take place. We shouldn't base our successes on whether someone gets elected or not. Politicians will change, but the people remain. And to the extent that we remain, they remain, as, as I would say, it's our job to make certain that we make Lincoln's words a reality, to not just cite these things, not just wait for that month of February to come around to talk about Christmas addicts, uh, to talk about Martin Luther King or on his birthday, oh, this is the day he died, and this is when he was born. Why isn't that every day in our schools about not just King, but everybody? Someone asked me once, this year, about some of the more notable Virginians that you would cite that inspired you when you were a youngster. And I said, Nat Turner. They were shocked. <laughs> Nat Turner? I said, yeah. Oh, uh, why did you say that? I said, do you know anything about Nat Turner? I said, I'm not talking about that piece of junk that William Styron wrote, having him being half crazy. He was crazy because he wanted to be free. <laughs> uh, or, or fantasizing and dreaming about being with his master's wife, all that silly stuff. When Dred Scott finally went out to Missouri and finally was caught up with and in, in prison, and he was said to 
And now he says, look, I, am I not a man? And when that decision came down in 1857, and this is why our youngsters need to know this, our Supreme Court said in 1857 that we were not even human beings, that we had absolutely no right that whites had to respect because we were chattel, we were property. Now, you know, <clears throat> sometimes people say, you get carried away with it. And sometimes they might be right. But I'd sit at the table with my mother and father, and my father was the youngest in his family. And he never wanted to talk about anything relative to slavery. He didn't know about it. Uh, directly because his older brothers and sisters were, but he wasn't. And my mother would say, Robert, he's asking you questions. Would you please tell him? And he'd begrudgingly talk about it. But I've never known a time when he didn't vote. He never would tell anyone how he voted. Uh, and I, you know why that was so, because things would happen, maybe. And yet when you consider that that wasn't that long ago, 1857. And when you consider today, people are saying, putting the blame of the country on people who have been left out of the decision-making process all these years, who can't do for themselves, and we can spend billions of dollars wasting them. And when our congresspersons and those who represent us ask for a fast piece of the pie, they say the kinds of things they say. And so I think it's encouraging to Joe Green and Paul Riddick and those of you who are here to continue to remind everyone as to who we are. And yet, do we love America? Of course. It can be that beacon light. It can be that shining star. Its future should be in ascendancy rather than looking back to talk about how great we have been, we still have an opportunity to show to those young people and to those many people who are unemployed today that they, you can get a job in America. And to those who are struggling to go to college that we, we can help you in some way get an education. That it doesn't have to cost as much as it is costing. And that we can some way find ways to provide jobs for you in the communities not only that, but we can make certain that you just don't do that. One of the things I would hope that we could do and that we've lost, and that is we've lost our communities. We don't have it. So if a child was a truant when I was coming up, everybody knew it. And that child would know it too by the time he got home. Somebody would have touched him up. Some other parent. Going to prison today is a badge of honor in some areas. That's another thing we've got to do. We cannot forgive those who transgress notwithstanding their being the same race. Doesn't matter. If you're messing up, you're messing up. If you're not going to school, what are you going to do? If education was considered the key with Brown versus the Board of Education, what makes you think it isn't today? Dumb people run absolutely nothing, not even jails. 
You've got to be smart to get ahead. You've got to stay smart to stay ahead. And you've got to let no one tell you you can't do it unless you try to do it. And if you try to do it, you can do it. I have been very, very fortunate, very fortunate to have had the kinds of support, the help, and the assistance. And I say that, and it's surprising to so many people, and I said it today at lunch, when people say, you were elected in Virginia, they must have put something in the water for those people. What were they drinking? Uh, 1985, you were elected lieutenant governor, and then you come around four years later and elected governor. Boy, that was a massive turnout of African Americans, wasn't it? I said, absolutely, well over 97%. But do you know that Virginia has the smallest number of African Americans of any southern state? Only 15%? Which means for me to be elected, I had to get a whole bunch of people who are not African Americans, who didn't look like me, who believed that I could have a chance and should have a chance, who believed in the words of Lincoln, who believed that America was that place where we all could have a shot and could have a chance. And when you explain that and tell that to people, they'll say, oh, we didn't know that. And yet I say that because in conclusion and in bringing the book towards its end, and if you notice, those of you who bought the book, I don't start off the book by saying I was born such and such a day. I start off by the first chapter is carrying me back. And I, I'll take a moment to talk about just a word or two in that chapter. I had no idea that carrying me back was a state song of Virginia. I didn't know it. I knew every word. We were taught in school. Y'all know it. You were taught in school to sing it. Had to sing it. And so my wife and I were in an event in Northern Virginia, and at the conclusion of it with the legislature, they lapsed into singing a song, carried me back to old Virginia. I looked at my wife, I said, let's leave. <laughs> so we left, went on to the hotel, people started calling, said, uh, is Mrs. Wilder all right? I said, oh, she's fine. Well, are you fine? Yeah, okay. Well, y'all left a little early. Well, yes, we did. Didn't give any explanation further than that. So I said, well, you know, that's just something that just, just happened. This, these people didn't mean any harm. These were an entertaining group. They came out. The next week, come to Richmond. At the end of the legislative party day, they'd sang the song again. Not the same group. I left to get my coat, because it was in uh, February. I'd only been in the Senate two weeks. February, cold as the devil, and I'm getting my coat. Who do I see getting his coat? Bill Robinson, Sr., who was in the house. He gets his coat. He's, oh, old gal, I just can't take this. <laughs> I don't know. I said, Bill, I, I know how you feel. I rode around all night before I went to my law office and I said, I've got to say something about this on the floor of the Senate, and I did. 
I said, in the second stanza of the song, it even says that the slave wants to be reunited with old Massa and old Mrs. in heaven. So how can a man be free if he wants to die a slave and then live a life in heaven as a slave? And I saw, oh, I got letters from all over the world. Mexico, Spain, England. Leave that song alone. And yet I got letters from people who were very supportive. I was, it was predicted that that was the end of my career. The first speech that you ever made on the floor of the Senate would be the last one you'll ever make as far as we're concerned. We don't want to hear any more of you. And yet it wasn't not only not the end, it was really the beginning. And yet I was doing an interview with one of the people in Washington, D.C. about it. They said, well, you know, that's one of the few battles you lost, isn't it? I said, lost? He said, yeah. He said, they didn't change the song. They didn't do anything about it. I said, that was seven years ago. I think they retired it to call it the emeritus, state song emeritus. I said, you say I lost it? He said, yeah. I said, tell me when you've ever heard it sung after that. They never sang the song a single time anywhere to my knowledge after I made my speech on the floor of the Senate. So you don't win things just by counting the numbers of votes or the numbers of victories. You look at the result. You look at the action taken. And that's why it's so important for us to tell our youngsters to demand what is right and to criticize what is wrong, but to know you're right before you proceed. Socrates, one of the most famous expressions that I've always liked, know you're right, then proceed. And then my mother would say, and once you know that, let no one turn you around. You can't know how much I enjoyed being here with you this evening. God bless you. Continued best wishes. God bless. And now if uh, we could have the Reverend Father Joseph N. Green, Jr. Uh, join us. He is slated for closing remarks. And today is his birthday. And so Father Green, before your remark, I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, before your remark, We had a presentation of our own to make with you, uh, and this is an engraved watch uh, that simply says that you are indeed uh, a man of your time, and uh, we appreciate all of the work that you've done. I want to read something here. It, it's our feeble attempt that's a proclamation, so there's nothing official about us. If Paul Riddick leaves the group, there's not another person there that has any aficionado, and so... <laughs> This is our attempt uh, at our resolution. Hear ye all that are present. Greetings. Be it known that the Reverend Father Joseph N. Green, Jr., being born on this date in years now past, <laughs> whereas Reverend Joseph N. Green, Jr. has served the city of Norfolk and its citizens with honor and distinction as vice mayor and councilman for the city of Norfolk, Virginia, and whereas 
Father Joseph N. Green, Jr., as a man of exceptional strength, faith, conviction, and servant leadership, served as senior pastor of the Grace Episcopal Church. I believe uh, that rector, is that right, uh, Father Green? Both and. Both and. <laughs> He assumed the role of uh, board chairman, chief advocate, and principal patron and champion for the restoration of the historic Christmas Attic Theater where our colleague, Mr. Earl Fraley, shared with you earlier this evening, guiding this project from infancy to a successful, fully restored, community-oriented venue and historic symbol. Now in celebration of the birthday of Father Joseph N. Green, Jr., we do hereby declare and decree by unanimous consent that the Joseph N. Green Jr. Lecture Series is hereafter declared an annual event. All right. <laughs> Given this 15th day of April, 2016, by the Lecture Series Planning Committee. South Carolina Herald. Are we both from South Carolina? We were not born in Virginia. We were born in South Carolina. My wife was born in Georgia, and we decided to go north. <laughs> so our first stop was South Carolina. I was called to be chaplain to St. Augustine's College University now in Raleigh. And so we are now at our most northern stop, Virginia. <laughs> Douglas, Douglas, Douglas Wilder, governor. We, we saw this happen. Oh, incidentally, um, it, it's a joy to be with you tonight and to have as our speaker, our lecturer, Governor L. Douglas Wilder. This is, this is a joy for me and for my family. My wife is here tonight. She said, I used to say beautiful when I said, God is good. He's given me a long life. 90 years today. And I've been married to the beautiful Mrs. Evelyn Grant Green for 60 years. And that is a joy. Every they told me that we, I had closing mark, remarks. Well, we have kind of another event attached to this in a room not far from here where we're going to cut a cake. And we invite you all to come, and I'll have the knife. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll slice it up where everybody gets a piece. <laughs> Paul Reddick 
asked me, kind of begged me, because it's the only way you get my agreement on something like this, to name this the Joseph N. Green Jr. Lecture Series. And you get to be known because you are in a place where you can serve, and when you're elected, you can serve. That is the one thing that you recognize when you are in office, you can do things. Every priest, at least in the Episcopal Church, when they are dying, has the idea of going up, getting to be the pastor, rector of a church like Grace Church, and then to be a bishop in our church. I had this choice at one time, but in order to been a bishop at that time, I would have had to give up something. I would have had to give up Grace Church in this city. I would have had to give up city council, and I was vice mayor at the time, and some fantastic things were beginning to happen. I got permission from the city of Norfolk to begin a process of raising funds to restore the Attic's Theater. And they voted that if I raised the fund, they would match me dollar for dollar, and they did. We raised $4 million, and we had $8 million to which to restore this magnificent facility, this great building. And I wanted to stay around and see that happen. And I stayed long enough for it to do it. Thank you, Denise Christian. She was the person Oliver hired to begin to work on this project. And she was with it to its completion. She's still here. She's here tonight. There was also something else happening. We had started a project called Plumline Ministries, trying to restore the neighborhood around the church between Bramington and Grace Church next to Norfolk State. Eddie Moore is here tonight. Eddie, it's good to have you. And it was just a wonderful project. It has been completely restored. All the houses are owned, and the great thing about it, as we went through this process of restoring this neighborhood and getting people to build homes and to live in them, not one was in foreclosure during that terrible time when all of the houses were underwater. It's now a completed project. I wanted to stay around and see it happen. I stayed, and it did happen. You can do things when you're in the position to do it. And I think the thing that kept me here more than any other was what were we going to do with downtown? And we said the one thing that would help it most 
was a downtown community college. And we stayed around, I did, until that was done. And now we went from a college that did not exist to a community college downtown Norfolk that has 12,000 students. The opportunities to serve came my way because of two people. They are icons for you and me, Joe Jordan and W.P. Robinson, Dr. William P. Robinson. Those two gentlemen told me I needed to serve on the city council and they say you're supposed to be called to something. Well, I don't remember being called, but I was told that that's what I was going to do. <laughs> I didn't have any choice. William P. Robinson and Joe Jordan asking you and telling you to do something, you did it. And I thank God that I had those two people to work with me after that until we accomplish a lot of the things that is going on in the city now. I'm not happy with my city. We have too many schools that are failing. We have too many neighborhoods that are underwater. We still have work to do, Paul Reddy. And Paul said, we're gonna do something, and we are. We've got to do something with our public housing. We've got to. And pray God that we will continue to work together to get it done.